Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 20! Yeah! Two decades of episodes. Episode 20 in the year 2022. Yes! 2022. I haven't had to write it yet. No? Oh, I have. It's weird. It's weird to say. Just a lot of twos. 2022. (laughs) 2022. (laughs) Just 22. That's enough syllables. 22. The roaring 20s. Woo. (laughs) I don't know if they're roaring. (laughs) These 20s, they're all... uh, I don't even know. Like, the pandemic needs to end. Mm -hmm. But also... I don't know about being in, like, a packed club. <laughs> Ugh, no. I was telling you off record, uh, that even, like, Walmart, with people not wearing masks, it's, like, horrible. I, I don't want to do anything. I just don't get it. I mean, we basically live like hermits, which, I don't know, but Rhode Island, the numbers are worse than they have ever been throughout the entire pandemic right now that's what they are and i know someone who just was getting over uh an infection with omicron and they were like it's no joke you know like you know it in your mind that it's not pleasant but she's like i wouldn't wish this on anyone so i'm definitely still in the trying very 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 much not to get it yeah i was like well, I don't want it at all. Or if it mutates down to a regular cold or flu where it's just a part of our lives, then sure. Yeah. But but I don't no. feel like we're not there yet. We're not there. And I read a heartening study that was like, Omicron uh, doesn't have the same lung damage. Mm. But it's like, but it still has some. Right. Right. Yeah. I like my dilapidated body just the way that it is (laughs) yeah it's i'm already fighting a million different things i can't add this to the list you know that's why i never got into drugs because i was like life is already hard enough i don't need something else that i'm trying not to do you know 10 times a day like no eclairs like that keeps me on my toes. Don't need an eclair. Don't need an eclair. Don't need an eclair. I don't need to add like things that are actually more addictive into that. <laughs> All I want is an eclair right now. <laughs> right? But now imagine that it's like something harder that would actually prevent you from living your life. <laughs> no. I, I, I just always knew like I have an addictive personality. I couldn't even go there. So... Thankfully, I was very stupid in my early years in a lot of ways, but that was one thing I managed. That was a bullet I managed to avoid. (laughs) I very thankfully have a pretty non-addictive personality. Yeah, it's weird. I've never known anybody like you. My whole family is just full of people who struggle (laughs) with all kinds of addictions. The casino is normally the, like, most eye-opening part of it. (laughs) It's like, 
I went to Vegas once and met up with a friend and she was flying in and I was killing time until she got there. And I was like at a slot machine and I won like 200 bucks and I cashed out. I was like, well, that's it for gambling for the whole weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I, I only did $5 more for like a novelty Dolly Parton slot machine. It, it had to be done. But, um, but yeah, I would like, she wasn't even there yet. And I was like, I won, I'm finished. Yeah. 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 I have to say that's the one addictive thing that doesn't really hold any appeal for me. I I could, it's just whatever. It's like any other kind of game. I once won a hundred dollars playing Kino. And I, I mean, you would think that I had won some kind of (laughs) jackpot. I was like, Oh my God, I'm cashing out hundred bucks. That's it. <laughs> but I think we also understand and value money. <laughs> true. True. Because I, I just go in with the mindset. Well, I, I say I go in, I grew up with casinos. I, I don't go to casinos now, but I would go in and be like, okay, well I am paying $60 to be here tonight. Right, 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 right. I am paying for all the free drinks. I'm paying to hang out with my friends. It was never like, I never had an expectation of having more money than when I went in. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. One time I did find a $100 bill on the ground in a casino. Wow. And I was like, I won $60. Because I'd already (laughs) lost 40. (laughs) And I told everyone that I won money. I didn't tell anyone that I found it. So my dirty <laughs> secret is out. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Yeah, I don't know. Ugh. I am maybe addicted to ice cream. Yeah, sweets is my is my thing. It's my downfall. I love it so much. Good. I mean, that serotonin, I just need it. And I know that's what it is because... I, you know, I've done, like, every kind of elimination diet and blah, blah, whatever. Um, I mean, I did live in California for a while, after all. <laughs> and I eliminated sugar at one time. And it's so true what they say. Like, once you are not eating sugar, your body stops craving sugar, and it's amazing. But during that time, there were a couple of times that I got sick, just like a cold or whatever. Mm. And I suddenly, out of nowhere, started craving sugar and carbs and it's like oh i see it my body needs serotonin like you know it's it's crazy the body's nuts but thinking of sugar and eclairs (laughs) do you ever get those ones that are in like the freezer section of the grocery store yeah so good yes (laughs) i've never met an eclair that i didn't embrace and enjoy my aunt would make them, like, from scratch. Oh, my God. Sorcery. I can't imagine. I mean, I know it's a shoe a shoe bun, but <laughs> that's as far as my knowledge goes. <laughs> I mean, my one saving grace is that I don't have the motivation to be much of a baker. If I did, like, I think I would be in serious trouble. I'm definitely disappointed in my baking. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I really do. I feel as though I'm a good cook 
and a medium baker. Mm. There's a, a couple cakes I can do pretty well. And, you know, I tell myself it's because I don't own a kitchen scale, so I'm doing things like cups instead of grams. Mm-hmm. That's my excuse as to why it's not better. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, basic bread and then stuff like banana breads or loaf cakes. Like, those things are fine in cookies, but, like... Yeah, what are you any- trying to make? Anything slightly intricate. I'm just like, oh, well, this is not as good as it should have been. <laughs> but, I mean, it's dessert. How bad can it be? But now I'm about to really reveal something. I feel as though cake in general is almost always disappointing. What? Yeah, I think I, I've i learned that I'm not a cake person. Mm. That it looks better than it tastes. You just haven't had the right cakes. Have you ever had one of my birthday cakes? I don't think so. Ugh, I make a mean birthday cake, if I do say so myself. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. I, I enjoy a lot of different types of cake, but it's like, I don't know, even from like restaurants, it's got to be like a really good bakery. Mm. I feel like it, it almost always looks better than it tastes. You have a way more refined palate than I do, though. I can say that without hesitation. I I am just, I'm just a kid from, you know, the sticks. I'm just a hillbilly eating whatever, whatever's put in front of me um, with a preference towards things that are sweet. (laughs) I haven't had any food yet today. I'm so hungry. Like, thinking that, I mean... Even though I just said cakes aren't as good, but like a strawberry shortcake. Mm. My mom used to do pineapple upside down cake a lot. That was good. Yeah. All right. So you haven't eaten. Let's stop talking about food. Let's start talking about something less palatable, like serial killers. Well, interestingly enough, we're going to be talking about food in this one, too. Mm, True. And there was a serial joke in there somewhere, but I missed it because I'm famously not good at transition. (laughs) (laughs) So I think for this one, I'm going to kick us off. Uh Uh-huh. Just a little bit of grounding information. Yeah, boy. So our crime this week takes place in the city of Sacramento, California. And as a, a NorCal, Northern California resident, uh, and I'm sure for you, Kirsten, as a former NorCal resident, mm-hmm. we're both pretty familiar with Sacramento. Yes. Um, but I assume most of you listening are not. Yeah. So Sacramento is the capital of California. It has a population of 525,000 people as of 2020, and it's the sixth largest city in the state and the ninth largest capital in the United States. Mm. So the SAC metro area has a population of 2.4 million people, making it the fifth largest in California. It's currently the fastest growing major city in California, and it's been dubbed the, quote, hipster city, which I was like, what? I've never heard that, but... Some Someone dubbed it that Yeah. <laughs> uh, in California. And in 2002, the Harvard University Civil Rights Project named it America's most diverse city. It's like the Oakland of California. I mean, the, the Oakland. Oakland is also I know. In California. The Oakland of the Bay Area. 
Yes, yes, yes. I understand. Sacramento <laughs> is that to all of California. Yes, yes, I fully understand that. <laughs> Isn't it insane that I understand that? <laughs> it's like the door that you can't walk back through. <laughs> <laughs> um, so despite all of that, it has a reputation for being a cow town because of the agriculture that built the city at the confluence of the Sacramento River and the American River. It's known as the city of trees because it has an abundant urban forest. Sacramento has more trees per capita than anywhere else in the world. What? Uh, yeah. And what? it's one of the, it's like either number 1 or number 2 in the greenest city in the world as well. Really? Wow. Just across the causeway sits UC Davis, which is the number one college for agriculture, veterinary medicine and sustainability in the United States. So funny story about UC Davis. When I was driving cross country and moving from the East Coast to California, I was in the home stretch. I was heading to the Bay Area and I stopped off um, in Sacramento and I got out and it was, you know, August in Sacramento. So it was a thousand degrees. And I was like, what (laughs) Uh fresh hell? (laughs) And then I got back in the car for my final leg of the journey And I drive by Davis and I look out over my right shoulder and see this huge college campus there. And I'm like, who in the fuck sticks a giant world-class institution out in the middle of nowhere, which it is. (laughs) Yeah. So very interesting, strange little microcosm place. But the Sacramento of the past has a much darker history than the Sacramento of today, Uh, one that will probably fill many episodes of our podcast. (laughs) I found an incredible article from almost 20 years ago now in the Sacramento News and Review by Doug Nelson entitled Valley of Death. So I'm going to pull heavily from this. Uh, We've linked to it in our episode notes if you're interested in learning way more, but Spree and serial killers have long stalked the greater Sacramento area, perhaps more than anywhere else. Though it's difficult to calculate, Nelson looked to the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers and other research to determine that between 1971 and 1992, 65 serial killers were apprehended in the United States. Holy fuck, that's a lot. Yes. And that's that's the ones that were caught. Yeah. Um, and of that number, seven were from the Sacramento area, and what? two more were apprehended in the Sacramento area. Uh, that's more than 10%. That is crazy. So Nelson asserts that if that, if that number is true, nearly 15% of serial killers that were caught in America during that time committed their crimes in and around Sacramento. That's bananas. Yes. And scary. (laughs) Uh, So between that book release that he used as research in 1992 and the article's publication in 2002, there were three more serial killers and several mass murderers in the area. (laughs) What? Why? I don't know. There's some assertions, but uh, running through some of the highlights... In the 70s, Juan Corona, one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history, worked in the agricultural fields north of Sacramento and was convicted of killing 25 farm workers. 
uh, Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, was terrorizing the area as the then-unknown East Area Rapist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Richard Chase, the Vampire Killer, or the Vampire of Sacramento, was convicted of six counts of murder in 79. Gerald Gallego, or Gallego, not certain, was searching for the, quote, ultimate sex slave and led to the death of nine women and one man in Sacramento, Reno, and Oregon. He and his co-conspirator Charlene Williams were captured after they abducted a young couple from the Arden Fair Shopping Center parking lot, a place where I've been. In the 80s, Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, the foothill torturers, raped, tortured, and murdered as many as 25 men, women, and children over a two-year period in their cabin in Calaveras County, east of Sacramento. In the mid-80s, Roger Kibb, a.k.a. the I-5 Strangler, began killing. At the same time, Morris Solomon began killing women in Sacramento's Oak Park neighborhood. At the end of the 80s, Dorothea Puente, who Kirsten will tell us much more about, made it to national headlines. Mm -hmm. The list goes on and on. And honestly, I've been thinking about this, uh, especially doing this research. I don't think Sacramento breeds killers. (laughs) It's probably proximity to major freeways, rural areas, and relatively small size for a big city. And so I think that means there's also like a smaller police force compared to something like San Francisco or Los Angeles. So I think it's like a whole mix of these factors. No, I reject all of that. It's creating killers. None of that makes sense. So maybe there's something in the water. Yes. Maybe there's something in the hot, hot summer. Agricultural runoff something. I don't know. That's crazy. So sorry to the Sacramento Tourism Board. I had you in the first half. And then there's a bait and switch. Uh, honestly, I, I do like Sacramento. I, I enjoy the times I've spent there. And speaking of which, I made a special trip to the capital city for this week's crime. Mm. And I took a couple photos of the house where it all went down, which is on our Instagram. Yeah, like a weirdo serial killer tourist. It felt really weird to take the photos. I've never (laughs) been like a a dark tourism type of person. I guess I did do the catacombs in Paris, but like I've I've never been like this sort of, if it's a step further than I would go, I would I would not do that in my real life, but for the podcast I did, and I was like, oh, this is weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm someone who kind of does, but like, yeah, I feel like I need the distance of I don't know a century or something to feel less weird about it, because I did do the Jack the Ripper tour in London, and I've been to Lizzie Borden's house. Yeah, that that feels different because they feel historical yeah. and not, um, I don't know. Is that just a lie we tell ourselves, though, I guess is what I'm getting at? Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but it works for us. <laughs> and with that, do you want to take us to the crime? I shall. And as Andrew said, we're talking today about Dorothea Puente and... I'm just going to kind of go back in time and start with a little about Dorothea, because I think that she's a bit of a 
enigma, I guess. So typically we center victims. And in this case, um, I'm giving more detail about, about the, the killer because again, she's a little bit of an enigma. Um, the killer that we know is Dorothea Puente was born on January 9th, 1929 as Dorothea Helen Gray in Redlands, California, which for those of you who are not in California, that's in Southern California in the San Bernardino area. She was the second youngest of seven children and both parents were reportedly abusive and her father was an alcoholic, but records are really sketchy. So I just want to kind of add that caveat to a lot of this older history on her. I saw conflicting reports and I tried to get what was most credible and what I could corroborate, but just know that this is, this history is a little sketchy. Some of it is from her and as we'll get to later, she is a compulsive liar or was a compulsive liar. So just bear that in mind as we go through this. This time when she was young was during the Great Depression and as of the 1930 census, so she would have still been a toddler, no one in her family was employed. Her father was a disabled veteran of World War I, though, so the family received a military pension. Dorothea, who I'm going to refer to as Dorothea, rather than her last name, as I normally do when we talk about our shitbags, um, but Dorothea had several aliases during her life and four marriages, and she always took her husband's last name. So using Dorothea is kind of the least confusing way to refer to her. So Dorothea, whatever the circumstances of her youth, had to fend for herself at an early age. Um, she reportedly had to scavenge for food and, you know, just kind of a, a difficult childhood. In 1937, her father, Jesse James Gray, died of tuberculosis at the age of 42, when Dorothea was eight. In 1938, her mother, Trudy May Yates, lost custody of all of the children. She died later that same year in a motorcycle accident at age 37. Dorothea was nine and she was now an orphan. Dorothea and the younger Gray siblings reportedly spent time in an orphanage after that, where she later reported being sexually abused. Family in Fresno took her in for a time, but by 1940, the census showed that Dorothea and her younger brother were living in Los Angeles with their oldest brother and his family. Some reports mention that she engaged in sex work in her teen years. There are no official records that I could find for this, though, and it's unclear, even if this was true, was it a trauma response to being sexually abused, a practical choice that she made for financial reasons, or both. According to Wikipedia and other sources, in 1945, at the age of 16, Dorothea married Fred Elmer McFall, who was about 22 or 23, and just returning from serving in the Philippines in World War II, and some time as a prisoner of war in Osaka, Japan. Dorothea and Fred settled in Gardnerville, Nevada, and had two children in pretty quick succession one of whom was sent to live with McFall's mother in Sacramento, and the other who was placed for adoption. Dorothea reportedly had expensive taste, and in the spring of 1948, at the age of 19, Dorothea was arrested for the first time. 
for passing forged checks to buy silk stockings and dresses and other personal items. She spent four months in jail for that crime and received three years of probation. Later that year, it seems Fred had finally had enough of Dorothea's pattern of lying and partying and breaking the law, and they split for good later that year. Dorothea at that time moved to San Francisco and reinvented herself as Taya Singoala Nayarda, a supposedly Muslim woman of Egyptian and Israeli descent. It was here at that time that she met a Swedish merchant sailor named Axel Johansson. In 1952, they married and set up house in San Francisco initially. The marriage was said to be rocky, maybe even violent by some reports, but it was the longest and in some really sad ways, the most stable relationship of her life. When Johansson was at sea though, Dorothea reportedly had affairs and gambled with their money. I read some reports that Johansson would sometimes return from a work trip to find a rando guy living in his house with Dorothea. Yeah. At some point, the couple moved east to the Sac area, Sacramento. In 1960, Dorothea was convicted of owning and operating a brothel in Sacramento, though she claimed that she was just visiting a friend and had no idea the place she was staying was a brothel. It's important to note here, though, that the main evidence against her in the trial was testimony from an undercover police officer who she reportedly propositioned inside the brothel. So again, we're already seeing in official documents her propensity to lie and invent herself and um, create an alternate reality. She served 90 days in county jail on that conviction. And almost immediately after being released, she was convicted of vagrancy and sent back to jail for another 90 days. So vagrancy, of course, is essentially the crime of being homeless. I couldn't find the circumstances around this conviction, but it strikes me as a little strange, um, an odd thing to be sent to jail for unless there was something else going on. Again, though, details about some of these things are, are very light. The following year, Johansson had Dorothea committed to DeWitt State Hospital in Auburn, California, after, quote, a binge of drinking, lying, criminal behavior, and suicide attempts. While in the hospital, doctors diagnosed her as, quote, a pathological liar with an unstable personality. So make note of the suicide attempts here and the term unstable personality. When we get to the talking out of our asses part of the episode, I'm going to bring this up again. Okay. (laughs) The true state of their marriage is impossible to know, but in 1966, after several breakups and reconciliations, Dorothea and Johansson split for good. Dorothea always spoke highly of Johansson, though, and seemed to carry a torch for him all through her life, based on an interview published in a great article in Sacktown Magazine, which I linked to in our episode notes. After the divorce, Dorothea continued using Johansson's last name, with a new first name now, Sharon, which helped her get some distance from her previous convictions and reestablish herself as an upstanding citizen. In 1968, at the age of 39, Dorothea married her third husband, Roberto Puente, who was 23, and once again, she adopted a new persona, Dorothea Puente, the name she would obviously later become known by. 
Later that same year, Puente opened an unlicensed halfway house for people leaving rehab. It was called the Samaritans. But within 18 months, Dorothea and Puente were over, and the Samaritans went under for racking up $10,000 in debt. Soon after, Dorothea focused on running a boarding house on 21st and F Streets in Midtown Sac, which, off topic, that's just like four blocks from that sketchy motel that I stayed in. Do you remember, <laughs> Andrew, during the wildfire? I looked it up on a map and I was like, I stayed at that sketchy motel. <laughs> I do remember. I probably walked right by this boarding house. Anyway, this is the real beginning of the Dorothea Puente community hero. She hosted AA meetings and housed the homeless and those suffering from mental illnesses and addiction. She reportedly helped people sign up for Social Security and other public assistance. She transitioned from her earlier style of silk stockings and flashy dresses to a more matronly look befitting her new persona. She let her hair go white and started sporting, you know, granny hair. She kept using her third husband's last name and passed herself off as part of the Latinx community, and she was beloved in that community. She donated to Latinx charities and funded scholarships. She became known for her tamales and for feeding anyone who turned up at her door hungry. In 1976, she married one of her tenants, Pedro Angel Montalvo. By some accounts, he turned out to be a violent alcoholic, um, but regardless of what was going on behind the scenes, the marriage only lasted a few months. In 1978, Dorothea was charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud for forging and cashing benefits checks of men she met at bars. So what she would do is she would meet men at bars, kind of get them drunk, take them Mm -hmm. home, And then either they were already so drunk that they weren't able to know what was going on or she drugged them and then stole their checks and forged and cashed them. She was given, I mean, kind of amazingly at this point, five years of probation for this for this crime. Uh, Wow, you would think it would be, I mean, with her record, you would think. Yeah, yeah, this is a head scratcher. But she continued to run her scams on older men all during her probation. And she continued maintaining that pious community facade. And it worked. You know, she convinced people that she was this nightingale of, of Midtown. Mm-hmm. In 1981, Dorothea began renting 1426 F Street. So this is the location that she is so associated with and that Andrew went by in a creepy fashion and took (laughs) pictures. (laughs) She lived on the second floor. This is one of the really beautiful and and kind of traditional California homes. It's a Victorian style with a, a first floor and then a second floor and the stairs go up to the second floor. So the second floor kind of gives the impression of being the main floor and and the first floor is the downstairs. She rented an apartment on that second floor. And later that year, she went into business with a woman named Ruth Monroe, and they ran a restaurant in Midtown's Round Corner Tavern. The following spring, Ruth's husband was hospitalized with terminal cancer, and Ruth moved in with Dorothea at this apartment at 1426 F Street to save money. Within a few weeks, Ruth was dead. 
The cause was determined to be an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen. Dorothea told police at the time that Ruth had been despondent over the health of her husband, and the manner of death was ruled a suicide. But Ruth's family always thought something was off, and they soon discovered that the joint business bank account Ruth and Dorothea had shared was completely drained. God. Yeah. Within four months of Ruth's death, Dorothea was convicted of three charges of theft for drugging and robbing a 74-year-old man. So at this point, after the conviction, Ruth's family was like, seriously, like, this lady is bad news. Yeah. They pressed the SAC police to reinvestigate their mother's death. But again, they, they looked into it and they determined that Ruth had died by suicide. Dorothea was sentenced to five years in prison for, those, for that theft charge. But within three years, she was again released on parole for good behavior. She was known as a model prisoner. During her time in prison, Dorothea had struck up a pen pal relationship with a 77-year-old man named Everson Gilmuth, who was from Oregon. And when she was released from prison in the summer of 1985, Everson was the one to pick her up at prison, notably in a red 1980 Ford pickup truck. Everson and Dorothea were soon making wedding plans, and they were living together at 1426 F Street, where she returned when she got out of prison. In November 1985, Dorothea hired a handyman to help with some projects around the house. She agreed to pay him and to give him an $800 bonus, and she also, in exchange for his work, threw in a red 1980 Ford pickup truck which she told the handyman belonged to her boyfriend, who was in Los Angeles, and didn't need it. Before he completed the job, Dorothea asked this handyman to make a 6-foot by 3-foot by 2-foot box for storage, and then asked him to take this box full of household things, she said, to a storage facility. This coffin-shaped box, which was nailed shut when he received it and full of, quote, books. Right. (laughs) So Dorothea went along with the handyman to deliver this box to storage. But before they got to the destination, Dorothea instructed the guy to pull over and leave the box on a riverbank off of Garden Highway in Sutter County, which is north of Sacramento. The handyman was not totally oblivious and he questioned Dorothea about this change of plans and she just said the box was full of junk. So Dorothea continued to cash Everson's pension checks and corresponded with his family to explain his lack of contact and then I think later she forged letters to his family pretending to be him. She must have been charismatic like have that trait of like sociopath psychopath like yeah there must have been something to her to get people on her side because the the coffin alone is like right like go to the police instantly it's such a impractical shape for a storage box i mean it doesn't make any sense yeah well and just like if you were helping me move and there's already a (laughs) coffin like thing and i was like you know what let's just leave it on this riverbank i changed my mind (laughs) like you'd go to the police yeah yeah 
Yeah. I mean, I think there had to have been some charisma. And also this really carefully fashioned persona that she had in the community that Mm -hmm. was above reproach, you know. Everson's remains were found in January of 1986 inside this homemade coffin. No surprise to anyone. But it would be another three years before the remains were identified and then connected with Dorothea. It was around this time that the owner of, around this time meaning when they took the box to the riverbank, the owner of 1426 F Street moved out of the first floor apartment. And at that time, then Dorothea began renting both floors. She continued to live on the second floor, and she began subletting the first floor to Sacramento's downtrodden at a very below market rate. So at this point, she essentially married her two most successful scams. The boarding house community angel thing from the late 60s and 70s, and her more recent black widow benefit pilfering thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It's worth noting here, too, that conditions of Dorothea's parole on the previous theft charge included a prohibition against running a boarding house or conducting business that involved the elderly or government funds or checks of any kind. So basically everything that she was doing in life was specifically prohibited in the conditions of her parole. Of course. (laughs) But in this unlicensed illegal boarding house... Dorothea, in one way, lived up to the name of her first venture, the Samaritan. She was known for sheltering even the most hard luck cases, people who no one else wanted. Social workers actually placed their most difficult cases with Dorothea and kind of had her on speed dial, so to speak. And Dorothea played the role of den mother and tough love nursemaid to a lot of these folks. She again helped tenants get benefits and made sure they got three solid meals. She also went through their mail and skimmed their benefit checks. So what she would do is she would get to their mail before they did. She would cash the checks and then she would give them a stipend. So, you know, we've talked about this in relation to Britney Spears. And this is how a lot of actual, reputable, licensed group homes work is Mm -hmm. the company that is charged with caring for folks, takes the benefit checks and gives their clients part of it, kind of an allowance, and then they take the rest. So she kind of had that same business model here, but of course it was not with anyone's consent and illegally run based on her parole conditions and unlicensed and without any kind of oversight. Ultimately, it was one of these very social workers who would prove to be Dorothea's undoing. In late 1988, after placing her client, Alvaro Bert Montoya, in Dorothea's unlicensed boarding house, Judy Moyes became concerned when she couldn't reach Bert for three months. She reached out to Dorothea, who, as with Everson's family, had ready excuses for Bert's lack of contact. But Judy left that conversation knowing that something was off, and she immediately went to authorities. On November 11th, 1988, Detective John Cabrera visited the house on F Street with another detective and a federal probation agent, and Dorothea repeated to them the same story she had told Judy. 
But Cabrera noticed during the search that the backyard had some loose earth, some locations of loose earth, and he asked if they could dig in her yard. And Dorothea agreed, and she even offered them a shovel because they had only brought two. It wasn't long before Cabrera's search yielded the first sign of just how grisly the scene would become. One of the holes contained a leg bone and a decomposing foot. Dorothea was taken in for questioning as the search on the property expanded, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. But because of her reputation, they still just weren't sure what was going on. It was hard to believe that this granny type person could be connected in any way to what they were finding in the backyard over the next several weeks investigators found the remains of seven victims buried in the backyard and the basement and in the end dorothea was charged with nine murders everson gilmuth the man who she had left on a riverbank in northern california and eight former tenants at 1426 f street ruth monroe her business partner, who was 61, Leona Carpenter, 78, Alvaro Burt Montoya, 51, Dorothy Miller, 64, Benjamin Fink, 55, James Gallup, 62, Vera Fay Martin, 64, and Betty Palmer, 68. Forensics showed that all of the victims had been drugged with florazepam, a sedative in the benzo family, but coroners couldn't pinpoint the causes of death. Did Dorothea drug them with a lethal level of the powerful sedative, or did she use the drug to incapacitate them and then suffocate them, a cause of death that we learned in one of our first cases can be pretty much impossible to detect? For her part, Dorothea steadfastly maintained her innocence. Although she admitted to stealing from the victim, she claimed that they had all died of natural causes, and she just disposed of their bodies in this way so she could continue to collect benefits. The jury found Dorothea guilty of three of the nine charges, while remaining deadlocked on six of the charges. Investigators, though, think she could have possibly committed as many as 25 murders. God. Yeah. Dorothea was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, and she died in prison in March 2011 at the age of 83 of natural causes. Now this one, this little factoid is going to ruin you, Andrew. The Los Angeles Times reported later that Dorothea stole during that period from these victims approximately $78,000 from the tenants. So all of this carnage for $78,000. That's so little. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much here. I'm obviously kind of not glossing over, but I've been selective about what I've included here to leave a little time for the wild out of our ass part, which, I mean, what even happened here? You know, it's, it's very clear that there were people in her yard, in her basement, that she knew about neighbors and other people complained about the smells coming from her property and she said it was from the sewer a sewer break main break or you know she had lots of excuses Mm -hmm. it's clear that multiple professionals diagnosed her with multiple issues but i mean there's just so much more that is just 
pure speculation that we only have her word on and we know that her word is worth nothing. It's just like the the persona sure it must have been strong but don't police have her criminal record like you could see a string I, so many things. I mean, I think that even though in many ways she seems very different from a lot of the serial killers that we talk about or a lot of serial killers who are well-known, and she is, but in some ways there are certain things that are the same that helped her do this for so long. And one of those is that she's changed jurisdictions multiple times. So a lot of these charges and convictions were in different jurisdictions. And so, again, we're talking in a pre-internet era. It wasn't like doing a background search and you have your results in 20 minutes on the internet. Like, Mm -hmm. it was just a different time. And so things were not as connected. She changed names many times. And and sometimes in response to having been to prison and other times just because, you know? Yeah. And this is, you and I chatted off pod she also looked like she was in her 80s. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I think we've talked about it before. I do the social media part. And so oftentimes as I'm doing research, I'm looking for images that will go along with the story later when we post on social media. And I looked extensively for a photo of her when she was younger. Because, I mean, as much as we try to be, and I'm not saying this in the, like, Republican sense of irony (laughs) but like as much as I try to be woke and I am and I do I still have been socialized as like a person in the society and so part of me Mm -hmm. is like damn she must have been hot to like be able to do all of this in her right like so I have this and I'm admitting this (laughs) so I'm looking for evidence I'm looking online for photographic evidence of her being fucking hot (laughs) and I can find any I mean The pictures really only pick up when I think she was probably in her 40s. But, I mean, she looked already like a granny in her 60s, which, I mean, there's nothing. I'm not, like, you know. People looked older in the past. (laughs) Also, she was probably leaning into this crafted persona. Yeah. But, But like, thinking of Ruth, like, trusted her enough to start a business, to yep. move in. Yep. Like, she, like I think that's one of the scariest pieces of this is that these people are so functional yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I think the family immediately suspected her, but I don't think it was because of anything that she did. I think it's because their mother, it, it was so sudden and so mm-hmm. dramatic, the change that she went from, you know, this person that they knew, who it sounds like was a bit of a teetotaler, and then within two weeks of moving in, she was drinking, and, and like, they would visit, and she seemed drugged, and just, like, such a dramatic change, and the only variable was Dorothea. So, you know, it's not like they saw her, and they're like, hmm, this lady seems fishy. It's just they, there were no other, yeah, you know, explanations. Oh, that's the- so scary. Yeah, the thing that I come back to and what I want, I called out the the um, suicide attempts and uh, that part because, 
you know, we were talking about this off pod and we were just, you know, wildly speculating. We're not psychiatrists. We're not psychologists. But, you know, you can't help but see a case like this so clearly motivated by money. So just so cold hearted and not start thinking sociopath, psychopath, like what's going on here. And I just did a little bit of digging because the suicide attempts jumped out at me as something you don't see often with serial Mm -hmm. killers, right? And so I was able to find, and I linked to some of it, I did find some articles that talk about studies of suicidality and how it relates to people who score high on the psychopath measure. Um, And there's not a high correlation. And so some of the conclusions that these researchers were making is that suicidality has is more associated with psychopathy which is just another term for antisocial personality disorder uh-huh. and that those people experience psychological suffering whereas most psychopaths do not and so it's not that someone high on the psychopath scale would never experience suicidality is just not very common because those people don't they don't experience psychological suffering in the way that other people do they're bad and and they don't care and it's that kind of callous i think how we think of most serial killers yeah and i think again clearly not an expert but i think there's also something about this type of killing for money Mm-hmm. versus killing for passion, compulsion, sexual. Uh-huh. Like, I, I think there's something that I don't know enough about, but something about killing for money. Like, this type of serial killer is different. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think so. And I, and I think that difference could be down to psychopath, sociopath, you mm-hmm. know? And it's clear that she had impulse issues. And I mean, she had, because from an early age, she's already, I mean, technically, if sex work was a crime, and it was and still is in many places, she was involved in criminal behavior as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the hallmarks of sociopathy as well, is just pretty much constant contact with the law enforcement um, and criminal behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. Another thing, though, that stood out to me was the unstable relationships and how some of her treating doctors described uh, just unstable personality. That is often associated with borderline personality, which I think some folks say that borderline personality disorder is essentially another way to describe post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. specifically resulting oftentimes from sexual abuse so i mean there's just a lot to it here and i mean i'm in no way blaming victims or or you know abdicating dorothea of responsibility for what she did what she did is heinous but i do think that when we look at the makeup of her as a killer and throughout her life there's more to it than what we see in like a sado sadosexual kind of serial killer yeah yeah. So, to the culture side. Yeah, let's hear it. 
So Dorothea's cultural impact is relatively small, but mm-hmm. extremely interesting, at least to me, and its randomness. Mm-hmm. So like like everybody, she's been featured in many true crime TV shows, like Crime Stories, Deadly Women, A Stranger in My Home, World's Most Evil Killers. Uh, ABC ran a two-part series called Murders in the Boarding House. Oxygen featured her as part of their Serial Killer Week, a nine-night special event looking at the most fearsome criminals of all time. Uh, There's a 1991 horror comedy, Evil Spirits, that's loosely based on the crime. Hmm. Jodi Pico mentions Puente's crimes in her 18th novel, House Rules. Hmm. Uh, I found two songs about the crime both from extreme metal bands, no surprise. <laughs> so listen with caution on our Spotify playlist. They're Dorothea Puente by Mastocline and Dorothea's Dead Folks Home by Macabre. Mm. So the boarding house is at 1426 F Street in Sacramento, and it was the subject of the 2015 documentary, The House is Innocent. Mm. And So as I mentioned in the start of the episode, I made a special trip to the house for the podcast, and the owners have fully embraced this legacy. Mm -hmm. So you can see my pictures on our Instagram. One plaque on the fence has a quote attributed to the house itself saying, quote, it was that awful, awful woman that did it. Don't blame me. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) They have three more plaques put up that I could see. Uh, One said the house was innocent. One says trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard. Mm. And in front of the driveway, there's one that says don't park across the driveway. The ghosts like to get out and terrorize the neighborhood. Mm. So they're in it. They're into it. (laughs) There's also a giant human-sized flying Superman hanging from their porch. So it's very interesting, people. What? <laughs> yeah, and the mannequin of an old woman, which I wondered if it's supposed to be her. Ugh, weird. And then me on the street just taking photos. <laughs> <laughs> um, but speaking of ghosts, in 2015, Ghost Adventures TV show investigated the house due to reports of hauntings. Mm. Uh, In April of 2020, the extremely short-lived streaming platform Quibi featured Mm. the house and the current owners on their show Murder House Flip. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. The crime in Dorothea's story made its way to the stage. In a 2020 interview with the Sacramento News and Review, Ray... Oh, it it can't be Tater. (laughs) T-A-T-A-R. I think so. (laughs) <laughs> Ray Totter, athletic. <laughs> oh, there's just such a world of difference between athletic director and artistic director. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might leave this part in. Uh, everyone gets to see how stupid I am. <laughs> Ray Tater, Athletic director is very different from Ray Tarter, artistic director (laughs) of California Stage. They remembered the shocking days, weeks, and months in the early 80s where all the bodies were dug up and the killer was slowly unveiled. So this is a quote from them. Quote, at the time of the murders, I worked at the California Arts Council three blocks away from the boarding house on F Street. Uh I actually drove by the day the police were digging up the yard. 
On the following day, I read about the bodies. I felt the same revulsion most people experienced, end quote. So with so many unanswered questions about the victims, the motive, the mysterious madam of F Street, Totter slowly realized how compelling the story could be. Quote, as I began to follow the trial in the papers, I began to think that there's a deeper story, one that could make a great play. I was convinced that there was also much more to learn from the life of this villain. Mm. End quote. Mm. So fast forward 40 years, Totter reached out to award-winning East Coast playwright Mike Lowenstern and commissioned him to write that play. The result is the California stage premiere of Dorothea Puente Tells All, an evening with the magnanimous, distinguished, and noble lady of Sacramento. That was the title. Very long. (laughs) Uh, Starring local award-winning actress Janice Stevens, uh, and it opened for a five-week run. Wow. So Lowenstern had vaguely heard about the boarding house lady who buried bodies in the yard and didn't want to do a play that sensationalized murder. Um, He learned so much more about the con woman turned murderer when he came to Sacramento for some on-the-ground research. So this is a quote from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quote, I was able to get interviews with people who were part of this story, a social worker, a detective, a juror on the trial a lawyer she retained for civil matters. I drank and jawed with patrons at places she drank at or worked at. Henry's Lounge, the Zebra Club, the Round Corner, the bar that's on the site where Joe's Corner Tavern used to be. I certainly felt an obligation to make her more than just a one-dimensional killer who kills. Her ability to manipulate people and institutions reminded me of an evil genius. I was interested in how she got so many people to love and admire her while she was doing so much damage. Mm. End quote. Yeah. So I thought that was actually a really profound... I mean, it's a play, right? He's got away with words. <laughs> but I thought that was a really profound way to put in, like, my own thoughts about mm-hmm. this zone of true crime, this type of person. Yeah. It is fascinating. Yeah. So lastly, in terms of weird cultural impact, in prison, Dorothea began corresponding with Shane Bugby, who runs the underground Michael Hunt Publications and the monthly tabloid Chicago at Night. Uh, Bugby is a serial killer obsessive who wrote to imprison serial killers, including John Wayne Gacy, Berkowitz. But m- what most interested him about Puente was her abilities as a cook. So he requested her tamale recipe in his first letter to her, Mm -hmm. and the two began corresponding regularly and even scheduled a weekly phone call. Mm -hmm. But she took her time sending the recipe. So Bugby said, quote, she would make me send her more stamps or a box of food, then she'd send me 10 recipes. Mm. So even in prison, she, she was like manipulating people. Uh, He would send her about $10 a month in items like makeup, perfume, John Grisham novels, a subscription to good housekeeping. And in return, Puente sent him dozens of recipes, poems, and drawings of bunnies, frying pans, and even shovels. So she's fucked up. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, clearly. Yeah. If you didn't get that from the murders. (laughs) This woman is fucked up. But there's something about sending drawings of shovels that's just like, go to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Bugby lists her artwork for sale on the Chicago at Night website. Uh, He says still he knows it's not all hers. He he said, quote, you can see where she signed over someone else's name, end quote. 
Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I mean, yeah. she's a known fraud, a known forger. Yeah. Um, but still, Bugby compiled Puente's recipes, which include chipotle ketchup, Mexican chicken gizzard soup, Ugh. veggie burgers, tamales prison style. Ugh, I read about and those. He put those in a cookbook entitled Cooking with a Serial Killer, Recipes from Dorothea Puente. In the foreword of the cookbook, which Puente never received any of the profits from, Bugby wrote, quote, Dorothea's been accused of a lot of things, but being a bad cook isn't one of them. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) And Kirsten and listeners, did I find some of these recipes? Yes. (laughs) Did I cook one of them? Yes. Did I feel weird the entire time of cooking and eating? Yes. (laughs) I cooked her potato stuffing... Potato stuffing with kielbasa and mushrooms. Honestly, it was pretty good, but I would never buy this cookbook. Another one of the weird things for the podcast. So yeah, it was totally fine. It was kind of like a a pantry dinner, but it looked good. It wasn't like earth shattering. It wasn't like so good (laughs) that I was like, I can't wait to try her other recipes. (laughs) Especially when the internet is, you know, full of incredible recipes that are from people who aren't serial killers. Yeah. It wasn't so good you weren't like, this is not the droid you're looking for. She is not a killer. I actually did see some praise for it kind of in the reviews. And I, I think she had a way of, like, mixing ingredients in a surprising way. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, not worth it. <laughs> And with that, that is the random cultural impact of Dorothea Puente. Wow. Ugh, what a weird one. Fascinating. I think it's also easier to look at something like this because it doesn't have all of the sexual assault. Like, yeah. People like Bundy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's yeah. easier to look at this. And that said, it's probably because we're not thinking of how awful whatever it is she did however she murdered them but even just how did she get them in the yard she must have been strong too no so that's a part that i've kind of skipped over just because there's so much here but they're not entirely sure what they suspect and neighbors saw and knew of a person who dorothea referred to as chief and he, she supposedly kind of adopted him as, you know, I, I think he was one of these kind of down on their luck people. And he became her unofficial handyman. So not the one that I referred to before who helped dispose of, of Everson, but he did jobs around the house. They think that he was the one who dug holes and there were some of the holes that had been covered over with cement. And so he did a lot of this and maybe he did it knowing what was going into the holes, maybe not. But then at some point, and I couldn't find a lot of detail, which is why I skipped over this part, Chief just disappeared himself. Hmm. And so he was not someone who was found on the property but more happened there. There's a reason why authorities think that the the number of victims may be as many as 25 because there was other stuff going on. And I don't think Chief was the only one who helped in that way. 
they suspect that perhaps she was some of the residents were part of it and helping dig the holes and then when they threatened to go to authorities they were the next victim you know i mean so yeah. there's other stuff that went on there so i don't think she ever really was one who disposed of or maybe at the beginning I, I don't know, but there's more there. But again, because of lack of good sourcing, I I didn't talk about. But yeah, I mean, she had a way about her. She was able to use and manipulate people. She was able to, I think, hone in on people's weaknesses and then exploit them. But also, I mean, we're talking about, like in a lot of our cases, a really vulnerable population. So mm-hmm substance abuse, mental illness. And, you know, in reading some reports of different people, psychologists who treated her or people after the fact who kind of analyze what they know about her. And maybe this is the part that gives me not sympathy. That's not the right word. Gives me something that I don't feel for our other shit bags is there seemed to be some conflicting drive in her, that there was a part of her that genuinely wanted to help these people. And that came out of her difficult childhood. You know, she had been one of these people who could have used respite and and help. Um, and in her early days, she focused her efforts on women. Um, and then that kind of morphed and then there was this other drive in her, which was she liked nice things and she wanted money and she wanted a certain, uh, esteem, you know, and that probably also came out of her fucked up childhood, but there are these two competing forces within her. One that was, you know, maybe not good, but more not bad. And then one that was really dark. Yeah. I read that she took in like quotes like the worst of the worst like mm-hmm. violent people mentally ill people like people that other halfway homes boarding houses would not take yeah and it's like yeah it's sort of that same two sides of the same coin like is that on purpose to help people or on purpose because she knows she's going to kill them and it's easier yeah and I think because of her ability to to myth make and to lie and to manipulate, no one will ever know that, what was in her heart. What an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, but so sad. And I mean, these victims, again, no less sympathetic, no less tragic than any of the other cases that we've looked at because of who they were, the ones who were identified and the lives they led. We don't know a lot about them. And again, there may be others out there that we just don't even know about and can't talk about because they're unknown. Yeah. Killing up to 25 people for $75,000 is infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Visit Sacramento. The most trees Sacramento. per capita of any city in the world. The city of trees. Answer your colors. <laughs> uh, but for real, it's beautiful. Yeah, there's great. It gets a bad rap, but it's it's a good spot. The Oakland of California. <laughs> <laughs> Which also and happens to be in California. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, listener, we appreciate the hell out of you. 
Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 